Okay, so hopefully by now you have found Mark chapter 12. And speaking of Good Friday, I have the question for you. Have you done your taxes yet? Yeah, just because you thought, well, it's Good Friday and it's Camilla Harris's birthday, surely they're going to push off tax day, right? Wrong, (laughs) okay? If there's one certainty in this changing world, you know uh, tax season is upon us and April 15 will be here before we know it. It's always a chore to get your taxes done. I I like the way uh, one late night host put it, though. He was joking about this. He said, you know, The IRS suggests filing early to reduce the chances that someone will steal your identity and file before you. And then he says, but I mean, honestly, if somebody wants my identity so badly that they will file my taxes for me, I just say, go right ahead. You know, while you're at it, mow my lawn if you'll do it, you know, right? Taxes. In In a changing world, there are very few certainties. One of them is death and the other is taxes. Well, as we approach this text today, we're going to see that even Jesus was not immune from discussing this subject. In fact, this controversy comes in the midst of several controversies in and around Jerusalem in the temple. We talked about a couple weeks ago, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? And, and not only was his response right there, but he also told the parable that Pastor Alan preached last week to say, the father has sent me, I'm coming as the, the son, the owner's son to the vineyard. Then um, we have this confrontation today that we look over the, whether or not the followers of Jesus would pay taxes. Next week, we'll be looking at the question that the Sadducees had about the resurrection. They, of course, did not believe in the resurrection or angels or demons or other spiritual things. That's why they're sad, you see. There's a question of the greatest commandment that's going to be coming up. And then finally, on Easter Sunday, we are going to look at the question that Jesus had for the scribes. The question was, how is it that David's son is also David's Lord? And it's a perfect text for us as we come to Resurrection Sunday. Because as Paul will say to the church at Rome, that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. He was the son of David. But he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's David's son. And he's also David's Lord. And I'm excited to share with you on Easter Sunday that text from Mark's gospel. But today, we're looking at taxes. And I know the Lord has a word for us. So let's stand in honor of the reading of his word. We'll begin in Mark chapter 12. and be reading from verses 13 through 17. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It's the Bible in the pew rack in front of you as well. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, We know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. 
Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. War can build strange alliances, can't it? We're seeing that with the invasion of Ukraine. You have some countries that would hardly have been considered allies united in their common disgust for the evil being perpetrated against Ukrainians. There are even some corporations on some moral issues which we would disagree with or we would have questions that are united with us in our mutual condemnation of what's taking place. And the bottom line principle of that example is simply this. When it comes to wartime tactics, a common foe often unites enemies. A common foe often unites enemies. That's the first point in the outline. Make no mistake about it. For anybody who was somebody in Jerusalem, Jesus was enemy number one. He was disrupting the status quo. He was questioning the religious elites, threatening the peace and prosperity of the political powerhouse, disrupting the status quo. And the result you have of that is verse 13. Some of the Pharisees and Herodians were sent to trap Jesus. This is important to note because Herodians and Pharisees were strange bedfellows. Be like Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell going to paint pottery together. Or do anything together, you know, like teaming up to do something. Here are the Pharisees, who are the conservatives, and the Herodians, who are the liberals of sorts, if you will. And amazingly, Jesus brought them together. But for the wrong reason, they both wanted to destroy Christ. See, both parties had come to accept Roman occupation as the norm, but they had different reasons for seeing it that way. The Pharisees saw Roman occupation more as God's judgment on Israel, whereas the Herodians saw the Roman occupation as politically expedient. So these parties that were typically enemies, they pledged to create a trap for Jesus. The word trap in verse 13 is a picture of a hunter violently pursuing his prey. This is not a friendly you know, tete-a-tete, this is a trap. They want to destroy him in his words. And the Herodians and Pharisees were able to overlook their moral and political differences in an effort to stamp out the one that was threatening the status quo. They cleverly devised a question about taxes designed to make Jesus out to either be a threat to Rome or risk alienating the Jewish people who supported him. So let's talk a minute about this worrisome tax, which was a compulsory fee that united zealots. A worrisome tax, compulsory fee that united zealots. The specific tax the Pharisees and Herodians had in mind was the Roman poll tax. It was imposed in Judea, um, and when Judea became a Roman province in AD 6, this tax was particularly offensive to Jews as it represented their subjugation to Rome. It had already sparked a revolt uh, by somebody called Judas, the Galilean, who was violently put down by the Romans. And according to Josephus, 
that Judas claimed, quote, they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords, end quote. The idea was that if Israel was a theocracy, paying taxes to Caesar was treasonous and blasphemous. Now, although that revolt had been quickly stamped out, it remained the inspiration for subsequent patriotic leaders. And so R.T. France in his commentary says, all of this uh, patriotism and this kind of uh, uh, milieu in that time and zealot uh, nature, it culminated and precipitated the revolt in AD 66. And we're going to be talking a little bit about what transpires in Jerusalem leading up to AD 70 when we get to Mark 13. But this all led to the destruction of Jerusalem as they squashed the revolt of AD 66. It was essentially a political revolt. And this question that the, that the Pharisees and Herodians they pose is to elicit a political response from Jesus that would have given his stance and made very plain his stance on that zealot ideology that was leading to all of these various revolts against Rome. So the stakes are very high and the issue is a very volatile one. There was no way for any Messiah figure to get anywhere in the minds of the Herodians and the Pharisees without the support of the zealots and the populist crowd. And if Jesus comes out against this poll tax and they can go to Rome and say, do you see this guy? This Messiah figure is going to lead another uprising. You better put him down. And if he says, no, you don't need to pay that tax to those big, bad Romans, then uh, the zealot people are going to be like, wait, we thought you were with us over here. And he would have no popular support from the people. So they think they've got Jesus pinned. It's a very clever question. And it's phrased with a yes or no answer. Look at verse 14. When they came, they said to him, teacher, we know you are truthful and you don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It's pretty simple, right? Jesus, we just want a yes or no about this tax. Well, as you know, some questions can be phrased in such a way that there is really no good way to answer it, right? I mean, the classic example of this, you've probably heard it before, is have you stopped beating your wife yet? Okay, there's no good answer to that question. If you say no, then you're continuing to beat your wife. And if you say yes, then you imply that you were beating her previously. Like, there's no good way to answer that question. No win. But what makes this yes or no question that's a trap even worse is that it's shrouded and surrounded in flattery. Do you see that? They don't just simply ask the question. They butter them up at the beginning of the question. Oh, teacher. We know that you are truthful. Literally, you don't look on the face, meaning um, you show no partiality. Like, you're not going to say one thing when you're looking at someone and then another thing when you look at somebody else. Duplicitous, right? So that phrase, to look on the face, he said, they come up to him and say, you don't care what people think. You just tell the truth. You shoot it straight. So give it to us straight, Jesus. Tell us, yes or no, taxes or not. Of course, they're flattery. Though insincere, is ironic, isn't it? If there was anyone who would tell the truth, 
and didn't really care. It wasn't playing partiality. It was Jesus. Jesus does something amazing next. Not just with his wise response. We're going to look at that in a minute. No, he catches them off balance. This is what I'm calling a wrong-footed attack. A coin's face already accepted. They made this wrong-footed attack because as it turns out, Jesus will prove that they already accept Caesar's authority implicitly. How is this? Look at verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Now, a denarius was the equivalent of one day's wages. On one side of the coin was a bust of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The other side had the image of Tiberius's mother, Livia, with the words Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. The Jews found this to be idolatrous and blasphemous. But did you note carefully who was not in possession of one of them? Jesus. He has to ask them to bring him one because apparently he didn't have one on him. The irony here is that while they're seeking to trap Jesus into saying something either seditious or blasphemous, they're carrying these coins with idolatrous images and messages right in their own pockets. And he says to them in verse 16, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Now, Warren Wearsby paraphrases what Jesus is saying with this question right here. He's like, Caesar's image is on his coins, so they must be minted in his authority. The fact that you possess these coins and use them indicates that you think they're worth something. Therefore, you are already accepting Caesar's authority or you would not use his money. It's like the pieces of paper. Maybe some of you put one in the offering plate. Maybe some of you have a few of those pieces of paper in your wallet. They are literally paper. The currency we carry has no intrinsic value. There's no gold backing it anymore. There's literally nothing to say this is worth something except the authority of the United States of America, the fiat of those who say it's worth something. And we accept that to be useful in our transactions, that it has value because the government says it has value and we honor it between one another. And so this is his point. Jesus is implying you already accept that this has some value. It's minted in Caesar's authority and the fact that you use them shows you think that's already worth something. And then Jesus gives this extraordinarily wise maxim, a concise phrase that utterly astounded. In verse 17, we read, Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Every time I read examples of Jesus' wisdom in these difficult situations, I'm, I'm impressed, I'm amazed, I, th- I think about it, I reflect on it. But for me, personally, I think this is one of the ones that kind of takes the cake, right? Just incredibly 
profound. Can we admit these words are some of the most significant words spoken in history? In one phrase, Jesus wards off those who are hunting him down. He legitimizes the authority of human governments while simultaneously situating governmental authority under the overarching authority of the God who created us in his image. You see, the coin has Caesar's image, so it belongs to Caesar, but we bear God's image and we belong to God. In fact, everything belongs to God. We sung about it this morning. Psalm 24 and verse 1 states it plainly. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. So instead of playing into the false dichotomy of loyalty to God versus loyalty to Caesar or human government, the straightforward meaning of Jesus' words is that both may be maintained at the same time. And he sets the stage for further development of that thought in the rest of the New Testament. We're going to look at that as we conclude today. But before we step out of Mark and into the greater context of the New Testament perspective on submission to human government as instituted by God and under God's authority, let's not leave verse 17 without meditating on that latter part of the verse. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But look at the end, it says, and they were utterly amazed at him. They marveled at him. The very people that had come to trap Jesus in his words are rendered speechlessly amazed. They're utterly astounded. The wisdom of Jesus is unparalleled. If you think about it, here we are 2,000 years later discussing this wise maxim, this phrase that confounded them and astounded them. One commentator argues that the wisdom of Christ is actually the point of the passage. The point of the passage to this one person, I think it's, it's worth noting at least, that Christ's wisdom is an identifier of his messianic nature. It's another way of Jesus proving his Messiah without saying it outright. Well, why is that? Well, just like Jesus, when he responded to the question of what authority does he have to do this, he tells a parable of the the one who is sent by the father, he's implying that he is the son sent by the father that they were rejecting. The wisdom of Christ is a fulfillment of prophecy about the coming Messiah. You see, when prophesying about one who would come from the line of David, the book of Isaiah says in chapter 11, verse one and two, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's that descended from David, according to the flesh section. But verse 2 is really the key. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And hear me, if this is not a display of the spirit of wisdom, I'm not sure what is. We often will play armchair quarterback on decisions that leaders have to make when they're put in tight circumstances, right? Like we'll say, well, I wonder if they should have done this, or I wonder what the president's going to do here, or how's he going to respond when he gets this gotcha question? And we watch and we, we kind of, we say, well, maybe they could have done, there's no second guessing. 
the wisdom of Christ here. Like throughout the ages, it stood as his manifold wisdom was on display. This one wise maxim. He silenced those who would attack him. And then simultaneously, he had to pick their jaws up off the ground because they were just amazed at what wisdom he had. But as we wrap up today, I thought it would be helpful for us to take this same wise maxim and consider it from the broader New Testament perspective and expand upon this dual loyalty that Jesus enjoins. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. So I just want to give some bullet point style wrap-up facts as we consider a Christian's fidelities and try to get some clarity on our duty to governmental authorities and ultimately to God. So these are what I'm calling wrap-up facts, a Christian's fidelities clearly explained. You'll note fidelities is in plural. Start right out of the gate with some scripture. We know that nothing that the Spirit inspired the New Testament authors to write would ever contradict what the Spirit-empowered and all-wise Messiah said. In fact, the early church followed this teaching of Jesus, and the apostles built on this concept of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and rendering to God what belongs to him. And the clearest passage, it's not exclusive there, but what comes to my mind when I think about teaching on government and authority and the institution of human government is Romans chapter 13. Many of you might have that pop into your head as we talk about this today. Just for background, as we look at Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul is writing at a time when the government, the Roman Empire, was corrupt and godless. Okay, so just clarify the context there. So you can be sure that taxpayer dollars were funding unethical, even perhaps horrific things. So while it seems obvious, it bears repeating, the moral behavior of the state is to have no bearing on whether or not Christians pay taxes or give respect and honor where it is due. Christians are called to a special level of civil obedience made plain in a text like this. So I'd like to read it for you. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Pause right there and just see even the two fidelities right there in the first verse. No authority exists except from God. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, but give to God the things. There's an ultimate authority. And every human institution, every human government, we are told and taught has been instituted by God. Verse 1. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the governing authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For, again, maybe for the third or fourth time, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, again, the servant of God. He's under authority. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, 
one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay, here it is, and why it's connected, taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Do you often think about that when you pay your taxes? I confess I don't. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It's pretty plain. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because Caesar wouldn't be Caesar if God was not God. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, he said, you would have no authority to sentence me to death if it hadn't been, what, granted you from above. Every authority is instituted by God. And friends, I know it's hard for us to sometimes fathom this, but you need to know that even seemingly bad government is a gift of God's grace because you don't want to live life with no government. That is when, as the book of Judges says, everyone does what is right in their own eyes and we would descend into complete anarchy. Even bad government is a gift of grace. So we obey. We pay taxes. We respect those in authority. Paul tells us to pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, even kings, dictators, and rulers, and come to the knowledge of truth. He reminds Titus to tell Christians, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy, perfect courtesy toward all people. Has your Facebook feed read Titus 3 recently? Is that an amen or an no me? Brothers and sisters, this is important. These are not my words. God's words and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from Paul to Titus, speak evil of no one. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Some of us are being pierced, I imagine, to the division of joint and marrow, and the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are being laid bare by our lack of fidelity to authorities that God has placed over us. We are not just being told this by Paul. Peter also says, be subject for the Lord's sake, not just for anybody's sake, you do this unto the Lord, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. I don't think the emperor was very democratic in those days. To governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You mean even Nero, Peter? Yeah, you honor him, Peter says. But let me quickly add, this is the same Peter who practiced civil disobedience. We, we need to keep this in balance, right? Because it's fidelities, plural. Because while Christians pay allegiance to governmental authorities, we owe our ultimate allegiance to God to render to him the things that are due to him. Obeying his commands, obeying God's laws and his decrees. So you have Peter saying in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Fidelities. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. So there is an ultimate loyalty and allegiance that we owe to God where we must obey God rather than men if the government ever commands us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. So let me close with a sort of pledge, if you will, of things Dr. Aiken in one of his outlines, he, in one of his commentaries, he gives this outline about what Christians can do. I think it's helpful. I want to share several of the points there. And what he says is this, as a devoted follower of King Jesus, with our ultimate loyalty to him, my Lord, my Savior, my sovereign God, I pledge the following to governing authorities which are ordained by God. If that's not a given yet, go back and reread Romans 13, verse 1. Okay, having said that, I will be a good citizen, one, living in subjection to governmental authority, even a pagan one. And that's clear from the context in both the letter to the church at Rome and Peter's epistle. It was a pagan authority to which Peter and Paul were commanding subjection. I will responsibly engage the political process, and if allowed, I will vote, seeking to bring my Christian convictions into the public arena. What a privilege we have in our self-government to be a part of the process of electing officials and uh, deciding on laws. So I would encourage you to vote your Christian values. Vote your Christian conscience. Two, I will obey the state but worship God alone. I will thank God for all the good he does through government, praying always for all who are in authority. Number three, I will acknowledge that all government authority is established by and comes from God. Again, Romans 13, 1, 4, and 6. Number four, I will acknowledge that all government serves in some measure the purposes of promoting good and punishing evil. That is what government is intended for. Bad government, though, is almost always better than no government. And five, I will pay taxes levied upon me by my government, recognizing its right to do so in accordance with Mark 12, 17, as we've read today in Romans 13, 6 through 7. And sixth, I will engage in civil disobedience only when government prohibits me from doing what the Bible commands or commands me to do what scripture prohibits. 
I think those are very, very helpful ways for us to just be reminded, practical ways that we can give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, knowing that even what belongs to him belongs to God. When we properly understand the latter part of the phrase, the wise maxim that what belongs to God is everything, it helps us and it enables us to live out the former part. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to do so, no matter how hard it may seem at times. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of uh, human authority, understanding that those who serve in those positions are ministers of yours. They're servants, as Paul said, of God Most High. And so even those that don't acknowledge that they are accomplishing your will, as the poetry writer says, you move the hearts of kings like the water of a river. Father, you are accomplishing your will in this world. And we thank you for giving us uh, a government and giving authorities over us that prevent us uh, from descending into the complete anarchy that the, the fall would reveal in our hearts, Lord, where we would just completely consume one another. If it weren't for the punishment of evildoers and the commendation of those who seek to do well and live quiet and godly lives, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to know when it's right to be quiet and godly and practice obedience and subjection. And Lord, help us also to know when it's right to stand up and say there is an authority higher than your authority. Lord, give us the wisdom demonstrated by the Son here in this paragraph of the gospel. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would empower us with wisdom, with obedience. Lord, teach us to be honorable, Get a tone and a sense from that in the text of the New Testament. Teach us to be respectful. Teach us, Father, to uh, show this courtesy that's spoken of, even toward people with whom we disagree. Inevitably, we will. But Lord, I believe that courtesy and respect are radical attributes in our day. So, Lord, may we demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit of kindness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, we don't have to say everything we want to say. Teach our hearts. But then, Lord, also help us to have love for others, which would enjoin others to obey God first. And to show their fidelity and their faithfulness to his commands and law primarily. Lord, in all this, we understand that there's a great deal of wisdom that is required of us to live in obedience to your will and your ways. 
And Father, I pray now, in accord with what James taught, that if we ask, you will give it to us. So we ask for wisdom for our church, for our people, to be wise and to be ambassadors of your kingdom first, but good citizens in our country as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.